Okay, so um, how do we want to cover this? There's like no chronology, really, <laughs> other I mean, than the order it's presented. <laughs> I Yeah, I agree. I feel like we go as much in the order as we is it's presented as we possibly can but like if we go on tangents then i think we go on tangents with this one i feel like it's kind of in the spirit of the film okay cool well should we (laughs) sync our audio (laughs) sync our audio ready okay one two three Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special episode of the Best Pictures Podcast. I'm Ian, this is Maggie, and on this episode, we are doing Symbiopsychotaxiplasm Take One. So kind of the reason we decided to do this is because next on our list of Best Picture winners was The French Connection, which is like a cop detective thriller drama and just with everything that's going on right now uh, around the time that we're recording and kind of close to when this episode will be released or was going to be released um, it just didn't feel right to do that particular film at this time so we thought instead we would take this opportunity to highlight a black actor director artist um, from around the same time period so as Ian said we are doing Symbiopsychotaxiplasm, take one. Uh, oh no, written... did I call it biopsycho? I don't know. Oh god, I feel bad now. Oh well. No, symbio. it is biopsycho. It's Sym- symbio. Symbio. Okay. Yeah, you got it. You were right. It's... You were right. Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> I just gotta flow with it. You can't think about it too hard. Um, but it is was written and directed by William Greaves, who was a prominent documentarian around that time. It is a 1968 experimental document film so he kind of takes uh some of that like more acting background and like his interest in more traditional film and then melds it with his experience with the documentary because he produced over 200 documentaries and directed most of those and like wrote most of those so he's taking like those two mediums and kind of mashing them up but then also he uh plays a very prominent role in it as a direct as the director of the film that the documentary is about. It's like a documentary within a documentary within a documentary. Yeah. It's so meta. And I love that you say he plays a role there because the the main thing with this film that I sort of got on my own, but if I'm going to be honest here, like I read a whole bunch of commentary about this particular film because there's a lot to it. Same, But it's concerned with the different levels of reality and what true reality is and how do you like capture it on film and how can you be sure that what you think is reality is actually reality spoiler you can't (laughs) yeah it's 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 a very difficult film to describe um i'll give a little bit more information about greaves and then we'll launch into the film itself and kind of really explore all of those themes that ian just talked about yeah let's do it so as i mentioned in this particular film Greaves is appearing sort of basically as himself or a character of himself as the director of a fictional acting documentary called Over the Cliff. It was all filmed in Central Park. They used a lot of just other people. Mm -hmm. And so there were basically three film crews. There's the film crew that's filming the actors that are supposed to be like doing the actual scene. There's the film crew that's filming the film crew that's filming the actors. And then there's a third film crew that's just filming whatever. Well, and I love the way that Graves in the the film explains it, where it's like, okay, the theme is like sexuality. And so just film whatever that means to you. 
is really the direction he gave, which the brilliancy of his like lack of direction being his direction. Oh, I just we'll love. talk about it. We'll talk about it. We'll get more into it. Um, but this kind of came around at a time in his career. So like I said, 1968, um, Greaves had been originally an actor starting out in the forties. He was part of the actor studio with like Marlon Brando and Julie Harris and Shelley Winters and Anthony Quinn. And then he went to stage and um, I think he did like one mainstream Hollywood film too, but he became very dissatisfied by the parts that were offered to African-American actors at the time. And so he instead moved behind the camera and that's when he really started producing documentaries. He went to Canada for a little while mm-hmm. and worked in film there. He ended up doing some films for like the United Nations and stuff like that. Um, and then when the civil rights movement happened in the 60s, it offered him the opportunity to come back to the U.S. Um, to do some other work. I think that was when maybe one of the United Nations films that he did um, took place. And then this was kind of like a labor of love and this cool experimental idea that he had right around the time where he became a producer on uh, the TV show Black Journal, which was on the precursor to PBS, that network, which he ended up winning an Emmy for and Mm -hmm. the TV show won an Emmy. So very talented director with like a very interesting spread of work. Yeah. Well, and in, in reading some of the, like, like, I think we both got the Criterion Collection version mm-hmm. of this film, and it came with, like, a pretty interesting read about Graves himself. Yeah. Um, and he was heavily involved in the civil rights movement. But in this particular film, and I kind of, it, it's just an interesting way to play on the audience's own preconceptions. Like, it's not explicitly concerned with civil rights or with race, it's kind of thrown out there by the characters and left up to us to process it through our own lens. It will. I mean, there's so much of this movie that you get, you get glimpses of like things that society was concerned with at the time. Cause like the scene that the two actors are doing is like super intense and dealing with like heavy shit. Like it's the breakdown of a marriage because like, the wife is saying that like the husband forced her to have abortions because like he doesn't want kids. And again, this is and also he's gay, like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, which they definitely use like slurs, which can be a little jarring, but it's like, and again, like this is like before like Roe v. Wade, you're like kind of really starting to get more mainstream conversation around like non heterosexual sexualities mm-hmm. and feminism and stuff like that. And kind of, where that all fits but to a certain extent even though graves's character of the director says that over the cliff is about sexuality it's also not like this like the film symbio psycho taxiplasm said that from memory be impressed (laughs) like that film isn't necessarily about those things like it has all of that in there but that's not what it's about. What it is about, I'm not sure I can tell you. <laughs> but I think that's the point. I mean, I I agree that your interpretation is going to change depending on your worldview, depending on the mood that you watch this film in. I like, mean, that's that's true with almost any film. It is true times a thousand with mm-hmm. this one. But what I really like about Symbiobiopsychotaxiplasm. Okay. Sorry. Symbio. <laughs> Symbio. Psycho. Symbio. Psychotaxiplasm. Yes. Let's just let's just say this film. <laughs> this film. Okay. <laughs> this is a tongue twister. 
like like it, they say sexuality, but it often through the commentary from the crew, through the commentary from the actors outside of them actually filming the screen test, it's very much this power dynamic thing. And like, what is the reality of the power dynamic, especially between men and women? Yeah, I think I think more than anything, it is about what is reality and the fine line between reality and like what it means to like truly be yourself versus to be acting on some sort of level. And then, like you said, power dynamics, Mm -hmm. whether it be between men and women or like a director and his crew. And I even think there's a little bit of satire on the idea of the auteur director, which was like (laughs) kind of popular in that era Uh of filmmaking that I, I read up a little on. Yeah. I feel like there's a little bit of satire on that because Greaves as a character, I think blanket most of the time when we talk about Greaves, we're going to be talking about his character in the movie. We'll try and sure. try and separate them a little bit, but he like, he's not like that character is not a good director. Not at all. And, and he like, he's not giving the actors to, uh, like what they need to do the role. You have multiple scenes uh, where like the actors are saying like they don't quite understand what they're supposed to be doing in the scene. Or there's even the bit where they have to bleep some bits where I'm like, Oh God, what did that guy say? Considering the stuff they didn't bleep. (laughs) (laughs) But if you can kind of dig through the language, I, what you're seeing is you're seeing an actor who's frustrated because he doesn't know how he's supposed to be. Like he doesn't know what is expected of him for how he's supposed to be playing this part. Yeah, he's given no clear measure of success. Right, exactly. Which I think you and I have kind of commented on that with some other films that we've covered that we didn't like as much where we were like, it doesn't seem like the director was giving people like direction (laughs) at all, which I think here is like so purposely done because it's like, well, what happens when you have the person who's supposed to be in charge here, AKA Mm -hmm. the director who everyone keeps talking about the crew talks a lot about like his vision and what he wants. And it's like, they're putting it all on him and what his vision's supposed to be. But like, what happens when like, he doesn't know what his vision's supposed to be. What happens when like, he's not able to communicate it Mm -hmm. And therefore, everybody's getting frustrated. Yeah. So, I mean, I think for the sake of some structure, like there is there is de- a definite flow to this movie, but I would say it is not a traditional like chronology or plot driven by any means. It's, not at I, all. I kind of view it as a set of vignettes that kind of build to this central theme of... Of? Question mark <laughs> of what you take out of it. But really, but really. Um, well, I would say of asking the question of what is reality. So leave it at that. Yeah. But I'll, I'll agree that I think that is the central piece. But then what your conclusion is supposed to be based on that question? I don't know. Yeah. So I think honestly, I'm I'm a fan of like, if we want to talk about how it deals with the power dynamic, how it layers on the the question of reality and then really delve into the editing that's kind of yeah like we i want to talk about like some of the technical stuff on this for sure but i, th- I think you're right we should save that for the, for the last section so on the power dynamic front we're immediately presented with the central screen test scene of a husband and wife having an argument about their marriage about the goals they want out of life about who has power over whom. Uh, mm-hmm. So this is where we we understand that, all right, this character of Alice has been forced to get 
as you said earlier, some like back alley abortions still illegal at the time at the yeah, so prodding of her husband. Very dangerous. Yes. So it's like she is frustrated that she is being forced to go do this dangerous thing. Because she really wants kids. Right. And then at the same time, you have her husband, Freddie, who I think he does this like gaslighty sort of thing. At least it's written that way in this scene where he's like, you're talking in circles. What You have me foxed. I don't understand. I, my favorite bit was when he said something about like, the, why won't you just tell me what's going on instead of making me deal with this hysteria? And she had been talking so calmly. Oh, like, right. She was not by any measure of the, I hate that word, but she was by like no measure hysterical. And he's like, I'm dealing with this hysteria. And I was like, no, you're no, not. No. Well, and to be clear here, the dialogue is cut rate at best. Oh, and it is purposefully, it is purposefully bad. It is purposefully melodramatic. I think it's purposefully going for like, we're going to talk about these really tough things in like a shocking way because, and they allude to it at one point, the film, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? which came out, um, let me Google the year really quickly, but it was not, I, was it the year before or that year even? It would have been 66. Okay, so right around so, the same time. Right around the same time, which if you've watched that movie, it does deal with these two. They're both extremely dramatic characters and like terrible people who have this collapsing marriage and then they basically pull these this other married couple into it mm-hmm. and like, Everybody comes away a destroyed person. But I think I talk about it on our episode of A Man for All Seasons a little bit. But it's an incredibly well done movie. And like, it's so good and impactful. But the dialogue, if you really think about it, is incredibly melodramatic. It just works in that setting. Whereas this movie, it feels like the the quote, quote unquote, movie over the over the cliff mm-hmm. is purposely being dramatic. And so you have this character of this Artur like director who like says he's a genius, but has written this like really shit scene, (laughs) which frustrates some of the crew, but then other members of the crew are like, but no, he is a genius. And they're like trying, it's almost like they're trying to find something out of nothing because otherwise how do they justify the way that they have spent these last weeks? Well, and the way to, to jump ahead to the editing just a little bit, there are three interludes of just the crew talking without Greaves in the room, supposedly. Again, do we really know if Greaves had a hand in making which they, those scenes? Which they straight know. up, they straight up address. Yeah, there's so much breaking of the fourth wall here. I mean, it's so meta. But I, there is a bit where you have. I guess I assumed he was like the assistant director or something. Seems very Rosen prominent on with the set. glasses. Yeah, the great glasses and mm-hmm. the mustache. Yeah. He kind of says, you know, as far as anybody who would potentially watch this in the movie knows, like he could be outside the door directing this. We could all be actors like we're not. But like you like there's no way we can prove that to you. And as they're kind of debating, like, is Greaves a genius? Is he not a genius? Mm -hmm. Like, what is even the point of this picture? And I I love those scenes. I think they're great. I do have to say those two women in that's in those scenes get talked over constantly and it was they pissing do. me off. Also, one of them straight up basically explains what I think is as close as an explanation as you're gonna get to what the film is about. And they're like, I think that's wrong. And she's like, Did you read the concept? And he's like, No. <laughs> 
And I'm like, dude. And she's like, well, I read the concept, and this so. is what I got. And I was like, maybe you should listen to her. And then there's one guy who's like, I read the concept, but I it didn't help. And I'm like, okay, well, whatever. Did you read it close enough? But yeah, did you read it close enough? I'm with her. Those scenes to me are are so revealing, and I am sure that Greaves was beside himself with joy when he realized oh, that this I'm had sure gone he was on. So excited because supposedly, like he. Everything I've read said that he did not know that the crew did that. Mm -hmm. The crew legitimately decided to just do that. And then they handed him the footage because there's the bit at the beginning of the film where he's basically explaining like, here are the three Mm -hmm. crews. Here's what you're filming. Here's like, I just want you to film everything. And I think that really is like his direct, genuine direction to everybody Mm -hmm. on set. And they take it to heart. They do. And I love that they did that. And then the fact that they hand over that footage to him and they're like, do with it what you want. And that he looks at it and is like, this is fucking perfect. (laughs) Put it in the film. Yes. Now, some of the things that come out there to like bring it back to that, that idea of what are, let's examine this power dynamic within this, this couple. I love how I'm going to call him mutton chops because I don't know his name, but he's one of the sound guys. I don't know most of their names. Most of them, their names you never learn. Yeah. So I think, you know, uh, Bob Rosen, and then I'm seeing on the cast, you also have Jonathan Gordon, which I don't know. I'm not sure which person in this film. Jonathan We'll go with mutton chops. We'll go with mutton chops. So that makes sense. Anyway, he, he flat out brings up, in one of these asides that it's like these particular lines are written by a stereotypical average middle-class woman and a stereotypical average middle-class man. And one is like, you're trying to intercede on my power. And the other's like, no, you're trying to control me. So like that is the central conflict between the two. Yeah. He, he says it, interestingly where he's like every man and woman is like destined to say those lines in some way shape or form in their life and i'm like i think you're reaching a little bit with that sir well was he but, saying that that was the case or was he effectively or was saying, he saying that that's what greaves is saying with the movie yes exactly i took it as that's what he was saying but i could be completely wrong see i took it more as the second way where it's like let's look at the stereotype and examine the stereotype and think about whether this is something that is reasonable or real or actually works in any way, shape, or form. Right. But then when he's throwing out like suggested new lines, um, oh. there's there's a bit where I was like, but even though I was like, but those are kind of, you know, looking from the year 2020 to the year 1968 and what like I would conceive as like classic 1960s just trying to be like shocking because you know for the first time in a long time there's no production code you know Mm -hmm. like they Mm -hmm. can be i was like the lines you're saying have also almost become a stereotype yeah and so you're talking about the part where he is being i very graphic well yeah and explicit about like okay these are the sex acts we all like and I like doing this yeah. to you. You like doing this to me. Like, and being like, instead of why are you saying euphemisms? Why aren't you just saying that like their sex life and their marriage isn't good? But he says it like super, super explicitly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which, again, still loved because it's still like, all right, I like this. I want this. How can we make this work out? between the couple that's the first thing and then he's basically saying that like the lines as they currently are mean nothing yeah and they don't like when you listen to it it's it is 
it's a stereotype. Yeah. Like it is, it is purposefully written to be a stereotype. It is written to be cringy. It is written to be like, this is not a good film. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in addition to that, that dialogue that I think we've talked at length about, I love the, when you take a step back and look through the lens, <laughs> no pun intended, of the film crew that's filming the film crew. Yeah. I love seeing the inversion of the power dynamic within the actual crew. So again, you have Greaves who, whether on purpose or by like, again, don't know his internal motivations or thought process here, but he is essentially abdicating all of his power to actually direct this film. And so- Yeah, he has that bit where he talks about how it's a communal effort to make the film- good yeah no that that's a quote i actually wrote down because i loved it and i love it because as a maybe tertiary theme here i feel like it's also a commentary on the desire for a group of creatives to come to something that like makes sense and feels worthwhile which honestly could be human existence period at some point right well i think i think it's the pull between again and i've said it a couple of times the idea of the like artur He's such a genius, you just don't get it. Like, director who kind of transcends to a stardom of what you would think of as, like, like versus, like, an old Hollywood star, mm-hmm. almost, where, like, the director becomes a celebrity versus, like, this whole bit in, like, the 60s and 70s with, like, that I personally am not sure how accurate this is, like, associate a lot with, like, the hippie movement mm-hmm. of, like, the collective and, like, well, and that's what this like, film to became. A, to a certain extent of like, <laughs> yeah, of it being like a let where you start getting like, you know, like the collective artist communities and stuff. Not to say that that's been, you know, that's isolated to that era of history. Mm-hmm. But like, like you said, like having a group of creative individuals build something together. So it's, it's like the fight between those two very different views of art and like mm-hmm. artistic genius and capability. But the subversion of the subversion, which I love, is that Graves <laughs> still gets the last laugh. Like he is he does not control the content that is created very closely, but he 100% controls what is in the final product. And oh, I absolutely. love how that's like at odds and- within the film itself. One of them even, going back to it being so meta, one of the crew members even talks about that. I think it's the woman who kind of talks about the theme as well, mm-hmm. um, where she's the one who always had really good eye makeup. Maria? great skirts. Was her name Maria? I, I couldn't- Was she I, the one that was, was very plugging rarely. in uh, Yes, yes, it is Maria. They yep. say her name at the beginning, yeah. She even says something about, you know, we've, we've shot all this footage but the final product, there's like 300 different ways you can edit this film. So saying that this is a bad movie and that he doesn't know what he's doing is almost something you can't do because you don't know what the finished product looks like yet. Yeah. I loved her. She knew what was up. Oh, she did. Well, and so did the other woman doing sound. Yeah, I also really liked her. She, her, she knew. had the best style. <laughs> the best style. She was so... I. This was a great little view of like late 1960s streetwear too. Yeah, like seeing all the people around the film crew, like to kind of move more into what is real and what is not, like seeing all of the surroundings for this scene inside the park adds to that idea that, okay, this is just a conceit 
and like look at where we're doing this and what's actually going on and how it is the furthest thing from what is actually happening in the park. Yeah. I mean, you even get like the little bits like the cop car coming into the shot. Mm-hmm. And like you have the group of onlookers who are like watching the film being made and are like included in some of the filming. And Ooh. then you have the very. And that that group near the beginning of the film, I loved this so much because immediately when you see this group of like kids, young teenager type folks coming up mm-hmm. to watch, they immediately turn on when they're in front of the camera. So yeah. showing how their behavior is very much targeted at being on film is just driving home that contrast between the entire opening sequence where it was like long shots of folks just minding their business, doing whatever compared to people like acting for the camera. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and you even get like the crew talking at some point where they're like, they don't even know if, if Greaves is acting. Yeah. Even saying, I think the one guy kind of does the the kind of the broad impression where he's like, even when he's like calling us all together and stuff, like he's still acting to a certain extent which also kind of is part of the movie as well because there's like a line right at the beginning where he's like being Greaves is being sexist Mm -hmm. but then he says to the camera um don't take me seriously and you're like is that William Greaves the man being like this is the part I am playing as this director or is it like the character of the director being like doing the kind of like dismissive right sexist thing of being like oh i'm just joking it's fine you're like which one is it <laughs> well and and to talk about the reality or not reality of greaves himself i genuinely am fascinated by how he he real greaves presented character greaves in the film so one he has that ridiculous mesh shirt on the entire time (laughs) which is like this super at least in my mind like this kind of artsy plays into that i am a creative i am a genius i do what i want um and even the way he talks and the cadence and pitch and word choice he has just kind of lends itself to him being on this other level compared to the rest of the crew Mm -hmm. he's just like spacey yeah, no, it. he's he's I'm he's playing this character so well and so believably, but at a certain point you're like, how much of this is him and how much mm-hmm. of it is his character? And he's purposely not letting you know that. And you even have the crew debating it where they're like, I I think he's acting, I think he's putting on this character. But then they're also like, What does he want from this film? Does he know what he's doing? Does he not know what he's doing? And like that is a whole debate that they have. And you have the that crew so scrambling for like, what is what is my like North Star in this? What is my reality? Yeah. And even what they is, can't tell you. What is the reality and purpose <laughs> of this film? That's what they're debating yeah. the whole time. And it's it's so interesting. And every single one of them makes good points. Every single one of them can support their case. Mm-hmm. So you're like, well, which one is it? Because some of them are contradictory. Well, and that honestly lends itself to a bigger assertion that reality is what you perceive. Yeah. It's like uh, when Greaves is describing the film to the cop and he says it's a feature length we don't know. Oh, yeah. Because it's so good. what each person makes of it and what each, each viewer makes of it to some extent. Yeah. And then even going back to the acting, there's the bit where the actor who plays Freddie 
is talking to the actress playing Alice mm-hmm. and he's talking about when you can hear the click, click, click of the film. You know, it's not reality. Like, you and you know, know it's not it. like, like, you know, like you act more because you can hear the click, click, click of the film, which kind of goes back into that. Like, well, even in a film that like the whole thing is like, we're filming everything. It's realism. It's cinema, cinema verite. Like, is it really? Yeah. Cause because, you know, like, you're being filmed. The f- does the fact that there is a camera there just completely like null and void the ability to have quote unquote reality? And no, it doesn't. And this is why I love the third film crew. <laughs> so Don, the the actor who played Freddie, we get a hilarious, but also extremely telling aside that he was talking with uh, Mr. Mutton Chops, the sound guy. I'm not convinced that that's real. Are, really? I'm not. It seems too good for the subplot of these actors having a difficult time. And there's been other stuff that shows them not getting along. So I even whether or not it was like directed or set up by anybody else, the fact that that actor, I am sure, knows that there are cameras around. Even as he said, when you have the click, click, click of the camera going... You just know. You know. Okay, you just added a whole dimension to that for me. Because Don, the actor, is just like shit-talking his co-star and calling her essentially a privileged prima donna. Yeah. I was like losing my shit during that scene because I was like, is it real? (laughs) Is it? And I just accepted it was real because of the way he reacted at the end where he was like, you dog, you were filming that. And like now that I'm thinking back on his See, that didn't feel real to me. Was it? I yeah. Okay, like I mean, it really could... fast. This is a seventy-five minute film. Like I could talk about it for hours. <laughs> I don't know how much how Greaves was able to make so much happen in so little time. That's I think that's part of the brilliance. It really, it really, really is. Um, and you know, even more to the like reality versus non-reality, and then like the crappy dialogue of the Mm -hmm. like scene that they're supposedly shooting over and over again there was another line i wrote down um i feel like this is a little bit out of place right now but it just like came to me but um human life isn't necessarily well written yeah so is this dialogue realistic because it's bad well and then they go into the (laughs) improv I, i i believe it was the second interlude with just the crew where they talked about the it life not being well written Mm-hmm. And that is then quick props to the editing, butted up against Don and Patricia, who play Freddie and Alice, improvising that scene. And that improvisation, I actually thought was a lot better than oh, I the agree. lines. And I, I don't know. I think that is a perfect example of how Greaves' non-direction is actually leading to something interesting. Which he even says when he's talking to the crew and the crew's about to mutiny because they're like, this is shit and we don't know what's going on. He's When he's saying the whole spiel about like, I want everybody to be involved in everything. And he's like, well, yeah, okay, the lines are bad. So like, let's come up with something better. Like, help me do this. That's when the actors get to improv. Yeah. Well, and the line, because I did write it down because I loved it. He's talking how the important thing is that something that is entirely exciting and creative as a result of our collective efforts is what yeah. the film produces or and in that same speech he talks it about talks about arriving at a creative piece of cinematic experience and 
honestly, I think that bar was met. I I agree. I mean, I when we were decided, so I didn't know a whole lot about this film going into. I did like read up and stuff as you did. Um, but when I was like, you know, looking at films and we were kind of deciding which one to do, I I feel like we were just so interested in this one. We're like. This could be really cool. And I was a little bit nervous mm-hmm. because I know I'm, I certainly feel this way. And, and I think you do too, where if I can tell that someone's trying to be artsy, I usually don't like it. Like if I'm like, <laughs> you're being artsy to try and be artsy, to try and be like, oh, you just don't get it. Then I, I usually can't stand it. This film is not like that. Mm-hmm. It genuinely feels like Greaves was like, you know what? I have a cool idea. Let's try this. Let's see what we get. And all of that comes down, in my opinion, to the editing. Agreed. And I think you said it best when you described it as how the movie feels organic. And I think it feels organic, but it still feels like it has intent and purpose. Mm -hmm. And that is because of the editing. Oh, for sure. One technique, and I know this is mentioned in much of the commentary that I read, but I Mm -hmm. will echo it, is the use of multiple views across the multiple cameras. So even at the very beginning, we see Alice and Freddie, different different actors than the main ones, because they went through, it sounds like four or five sets of different actors for this quote unquote screen yeah. test. But you have different views of them just talking and focusing on both of them at the same time, which for a feature so you film is you've so got different. Like, <laughs> I want to describe how this looks. Yes. Um, so it's basically you have a black screen and then you'll have at times two to three like boxes as if you were looking at a celluloid film strip and then each of those boxes is a different camera view of the exact same scene and my favorite example is where it's filming this initial scene of like Alice and Freddie like walking down that path and you've got on one side the view from the camera that's like filming the actors that would be like what you would see in a finished product of the movie and I think it's the middle, you have the camera that's filming that film crew so you can see how the film crew is set up around the scene and moving with the scene as mm-hmm. it happens as they're filming. And then you have the third camera, which is like the film crew that's catching it all. Well, and are you talking about the one where the third film crew was like way, way, way in the distance? Yeah. Okay, so that was brilliant because the so people cool. around the two actors are so involved in their current role they can be nothing but real in that moment. Like, that is their reality. It was just the coolest thing, and I loved it. And because you're you're watching the same scene unfold, mm-hmm. but from every layer and angle. So it's yeah. like, here's what you would see on a finished product movie screen, but here is the quote-unquote reality of everything that happens mm-hmm. to make that scene happen the way it does. Yes. Now, that was one use of the kind of triptych presentation of the the three crews. But the one that I thought was the shining example was in, I believe it was the third crew interlude, where you have, I, I believe it was Rosen talking, was it him? I Anyway. I think cr- it's him. I think it's him. Uh, talking about how Greaves gives some like answer that's vaguer than the question and stuff. That When they ask like what the movie's mm-hmm. about. And so that frame starts large. It shrinks down to the smallest of the three boxes. And on either side, we have pictures of Greaves, one talking to an actor. Oh, no, no, no. This was the one. Um, 
this is, uh, what was it? He was talking about how the film crew is the only folks that are removed enough from the action. And oh, the yeah, to act like a chorus. Exactly. But that begs the question, are they actually removed? Great question. But <laughs> the way that Greaves put him on the left of the screen, essentially confusing this poor actress, like you could see it on her face, how she was like, I don't know what you're talking about or what you yeah, want from me. I have no idea me. what you want from me. But that paired with the dialogue from the crew talking about how Greaves just confuses everybody and doesn't know what he's doing, just is like hammering home that, like, yeah, I was confusing everybody. What about it? <laughs> I see that I as commentary should, I, from Greaves himself. Like, oh, I do Greaves. too. I do. I do too. I like. I said, I'm. I'm very much on the page of the director as a character um, because, you know, also, as we said, like Greaves was a trained, talented actor Mm -hmm. too. So he's really getting to kind of flex here a bit, but I, yeah, just the use of the like different camera views to show different aspects of what's going on, which really does beg the idea of like, okay, well, which of them is like the true one, which of them shows you what's really happening just again it plays with that idea of like what is reality Mm -hmm. and then if you know if we even want to tie that into power dynamics you know because Greaves has the final say in the editing he also has the final say in what versions of reality he is presenting to the viewer so in the end it's all Greaves's reality exactly and to go back to the scene that you mentioned where there's the voiceover of Greaves is a horrible director he's not doing And then with that audio, Greaves decides to put him by himself walking away from the camera, like daydreaming, just doing whatever, walking around, not directing. Like, what is he telling us there? To me, he was like, yeah, I was absentee so that you all would fill this void. (laughs) To me, that's where I was getting more the commentary of the like, quote unquote, artistic genius and like the mistaking mistaking incompetence for genius Mm -hmm. because both are hard to understand right i am by no means qualified to say what i'm about to say but like that particular say it anyway i I mean that particular scene definitely puts me in the genius camp (laughs) just because it's so self-aware i think greaves like talking about william greaves the man Mm -hmm. and the direct like the director the the real person not the character the real person yeah oh i'm i'm going with genius yeah I think this film's incredible. Um, now, I will be clear. I did have to watch this twice. <laughs> I watched it once, like, a couple hours before recording this. I'm excited to watch it again, and I'm excited to make other people watch it. I want to watch other people watch it. I do, too. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, I guess, a very greasy so uh, take on it. Yeah. I like your your analysis of that better, that it's greasy because <laughs> I was like, it's creepy. <laughs> No, but you know what it what is like why you make your best mm-hmm. friends watch your favorite movies or read your favorite books because you're like, I can't experience it for the first time. But you again, can. So I want to watch somebody else experience it for the first time because that's the closest I'll ever get. Mm-hmm. I definitely agree with you there. And I, I think lending to that as well, I, I read in, again, in some other sources where Greaves apparently had stated that he was disappointed that he didn't film himself reacting to the film crew's reels. Yeah, as he was like editing it and watching it for the first time. One thing that I I do love the blurred line here, though, is 
is real Greaves still real Greaves when he's saying that? Or is this continuing the conceit to say that that particular scene was actually organic instead of directed by Greaves himself? Because Mutton Chops feels like a plant to me. I He just seems like, you know what Mutton Chops seems like to me? He seems like that kid who read Catcher in the Rye in like your high school English class who now thinks they get it and is <laughs> like really just a moody teen. Okay, that is... I, I accept your alternate reading as a possibility I've, as well. I've met I've met <laughs> Mutton Chops before. But I well then that begs the question, it's like would he be reacting as like William Greaves the man or William Greaves the character? Yeah, and does the presence of that camera mean that he would be the character? Does the presence of the camera mean his reaction is genuine? Yeah. Questions. I so many know. questions. But I feel I feel like to a certain extent you know what his reaction was based on the fact that he included it mm-hmm. in the film and based on what he included in the film because it sounds like there was definitely more that the crew had filmed. Like, he didn't include everything. Well, there was 55 hours of footage, it sounded like. I think I think that's what the Criterion insert said. So Yeah, there's like an insane amount of footage. Lots and lots and lots. Because um, going into a little bit more history with this film, he had intended to make like a five-part series, basically. But... Um, the film never ended up receiving theatrical release. He wanted to show it at Cannes, but the projectionist put the reels in the wrong order. I really want to know what order it was screened in because like, it's hard. I, I shouldn't say hard. It is less important order-wise. Is, or, mm, I don't know if it's less important. I still... It's already a non-linear film. Right. So... Adding more non-linearity, like, let me back up. Adding unintentional non-linearity, what does that do to the piece? Does it help Does it help it or hurt it? I, so I was it, it a case it. of, like, I think it probably hurts it, too, because I think while it's non-linear, I think the decisions that Greaves makes on, like, when he's using certain footage, I think is very important mm-hmm. and very deliberate. Um, but it's, like, one of those questions of, like, well, is it the fact that those the reels were out of order. Is that why it got rejected or did it get rejected because it was too different? Was there like an element of like the screening panel just not getting it? I mean, you you will never know because of that projection screw up. But because of that, the film never ended up being shown at the festival, didn't receive a theatrical release. The Brooklyn Museum was doing like a retrospective on Greaves's work in, I think it was the seventies. I thought it was 92. No, it was the 90. Yeah, no, like you're right. It was 90s. 91. It was 91 that the Brooklyn Museum did the thing because the, it that gave got the film more attention mm-hmm. and it ended up playing at Sundance in 92 where it became like a cult classic and um in, became popular among others including Steve Buscemi who worked really hard to secure funding for the sequel, which neither of us has watched yet, but that I definitely want to watch, which is... Take two and a half? Yes. (laughs) Instead of take one. I was about to try and say the whole name again. (laughs) Um, But yeah, take two and a half. I think that really does show how kind of like cool and different and unique this film was. And I don't know like a ton about movies in general from that era that's not really like my quote-unquote specialty mm-hmm. era um so i i know that there was a lot of experimentation going on especially at like the independent film level but as i was watching this film which i i don't know if it's been clear in our commentary or not i really really enjoyed 
and really, really am glad we picked this one. I thought it was like fun and different and cool and kind of weird, which is totally my jam when it comes to movies. I will say you have to pay attention. You have to. Like this is not you one do. of those like you're absently scrolling on your phone while listening to. No. Like you got to watch it. Invest you gotta in watch. It. You gotta pay attention. Um, but it's so worth it. And it, it's honestly, it's so interesting that I never had the desire to open my phone. Same. Unless it was like pause the movie and like Google something really quickly. Yeah. Um, but I felt like this was more of what I had wanted from our late sixties Best Picture winners. You didn't want Midnight Cowboy? Now, I will say, I actually thought at the very end... Midnight Cowboy, to me, feels more like a late 60s picture than anything else yeah. in the 60s. But like, instead of like... all, So Oliver is what won in 68, Oh, right? that's right. I forgot about Oliver. <laughs> we just right? did it. Oh, God. <laughs> it's not that long ago. So that's what won in 1968. So like, that is... Let me read what the other nominees were that year. Um... Funny Girl, Line in Winter, Rachel, Rachel, Romeo, and Juliet. So like some really good movies in there, but movies that don't feel like particular to the 60s. Like they're movies that feel like they could have also been in other eras to a certain extent. You know what they I mean? Whereas like this polish and safeness about them. They're mainstream. Yeah. Whereas this is decidedly not. And this was a little bit just more what I kind of expected from my 1960s mm-hmm. films where it's dealing a little bit more overtly with like certain societal relationship issues, mm-hmm. even if it's in a way that can be really jarring. Yeah. Well, and I loved the ending there. And this was another moment where I'm sure that Greaves was like, this is gold when Victor came out of the woods I'm on the ending i kind of wish that had been more to the middle i kind of liked it on the end and the, I, the only reason i say that is because of victor's flamboyant exit so to me it almost felt like victor's leaving on his terms greaves put this here because he wants to end on his terms like i don't say goodbye i say so long or i say ciao too. he also said ciao yeah. too I am not going to lie. I had a hard time watching that scene. I felt really bad for Victor. He felt aggressive towards the female members of the cast and crew in a way that made me really, really uncomfortable. Well, and you could see it on their faces. Like the Patricia Ree Gilbert, who played Alice, like made some furtive eye contact with the camera. At a couple, I was like, she is every woman who has had. She also at one point looked so bored. I was like, she is every woman who has ever had to sit there and listen to a man pontificate and make zero sense. But she like had to sit there and listen, which like because Victor, like he doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, his only commentary is, "I'm here. I am an alcoholic. The rents are too damn high. He was. He says he was a. I think he said he was a painter. He went to Columbia and was like, uh, did like architectural design, which like his story is very sad. Mm -hmm. And there's even a bit where he talks about like sleeping in the park, and they're all like, "Oh, I didn't know people slept in the park." And I was like, "Dude, it's like 1968. What do you mean you didn't know people slept in Central Park?" He flat out told you he was displaced because of rising rents. Like, you didn't know this was happening. (laughs) We're right in the middle of like the urban decline where like you have like the white flight to the suburbs and it's major cities are about to go into a really rough time for like a couple decades. Like it's yeah, I was like, I don't buy that. And one guy's like, I live close to Central Park and I didn't know people slept here. And I'm like, I think that's bullshit. I think that's willful blindness. How do you not know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I was like, that's 
how do you not know? But yeah, I I have mixed feelings on the Victor segment. That's fair. I think I think Victor is a mixed mixed bag of a. I almost said character. He's a character. He is a character. He does. He feels honestly. He feels more like a caricature mm-hmm. than a lot of the other stuff in the film. So he felt less real. But I think they that Greaves knew that, and because of that, that's where he includes the bit of Victor signing the releases. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, okay, no, this really is a person. Yeah. Now, what was that? Was that Victor performing for them though? Yeah, because there are cameras there, right. and is that going to right. like shade the way that Victor's behaving? Like, how much authentic Victor did we get? We'll never know. We'll never know. Never know. Now, throughout the whole film, we didn't talk about this at all, but Miles Davis had the fantastic music. jazz throughout the entire thing. So good. And. One thing that I really loved is like in the influences part of like the Criterion booklet, they're like one of the influences, jazz. And I'm like, yeah, creative chaos is a good way to explain this film. Like there is a loose framework, but you were given so much leeway. (laughs) Yes, it's creative chaos with just enough structure to keep everything together. Yeah, Yeah, they also, it was interesting in the booklet, um, and in some other articles I read, there are like various things where Graves like talks about his inspiration. And he was very inspired by a lot of scientific principles. So they, he listed like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, mm-hmm. which is that you cannot know the position and velocity of a particle at the same time. So like, again, like we can... Oh, but that's reality. Real or ah. not, right? <laughs> so like, like you can, like we can know one thing, but we can't be certain of another like we can know that the actors are confused by like what they're supposed to be doing but we cannot know whether or not they understand Greaves's intention like Mm -hmm. something like that you know what I mean or we don't understand how much of themselves they're actually bearing to the camera basically we can only know half of the equation at a time um, and oh, then also that. it was, I think it was the second law of thermodynamics, yes, right? It was the tendency um, of a system to move toward and en- highest entro- entropic state or something like that. Yeah. Uh, moves towards the state with maximum entropy in order to get thermodynamic equilibrium. So the system most with chaos. the most chaos. <laughs> I love it. Ugh. Yeah. This is so highfalutin, but also in a way that I'm so on board with because it's not pretentious. It's not. It's it's delving into some very philosophical questions and not really giving you answers, and it really makes you think about some things, but it's doing it in a way that's clear enough that you understand what the question is. Yeah. And I think that's the difference, because I've definitely watched movies before where I'm like, you're trying to get me to ask a philosophical question, but I have no idea what. I feel like the actors, where I'm like, I don't know what you want from me, artistic film. But with this one, I feel like I I knew enough to be able to engage in it. I knew what the question was, even if I didn't know what the answer was. Mm-hmm. And I am I'm almost curious if Greaves wanted there to be an answer. I think whether or not there is an answer is immaterial. Oh, I agree. I think, it does not matter for the film. No, like but... I I think the thing with Greaves is that it's like it's. The answer is immaterial. What's important is the question. But then I could also be projecting shit onto him the way that the crew was projecting <laughs> shit onto him. And that's what we do with art half the time. Yeah. Because there really is 
there art is 50 50 it is the creator's intent and then it is how it is received and perceived yeah like you can't have one without the other and then so much of how we look at art is projecting onto the person who created it what their intent was and whether or not that really was their intent is almost beside the point it's like you make you have your children and you send them into the world and you have no control over what goes on after that exactly oh which is a third like another layer to the power like okay i no longer have power with my final release it is now in the hands of the people that view it so Greaves has the power over what the final release is, but he has no power over the way it is accepted, the way it is critiqued. Mind blowing. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. It's, yes. Wow. Cannot recommend this film enough. I, this was, it was so delightful and so much fun to watch. Um, and I feel like we've tried our best to describe it. I feel like we have scratched the surface well and in again a grievesian way we have described our reality as best we can (laughs) yeah yeah this is this episode represents the maggie ian reality of how they perceived and experienced this film (laughs) results may vary (laughs) (laughs) yeah so i i feel like we've hit everything we can with this one yeah Definitely a different kind of style episode for us, but like I say, it's really fun. Go and watch it. It's not the easiest to find, but I do know the like the only real place I can think of it is via the Criterion Collection, whether that be their streaming service or ordering a DVD. Right. So potentially a little pricey, but like I think we both ordered the DVD, Mm -hmm. and so it actually came with Take One and Take Two and a Half, and it looks like there's a lot of like bonus content around both of those films. Um, And it came with a nifty booklet that we were able to learn some more about. So if you do really want to see it, I think, and you can, I think spending the money on the Criterion collection is not a bad way to do it. Um, This is a film that I would recommend watching it. I would also definitely recommend reading up on it and reading other critique of it because I think it sheds a lot of light. It reminded me of, oh, now I'm being pretentious and artsy (laughs) and I'm being like the kid who read Catcher in the Rye in high school. Okay, Mutton Chops. It reminded reminded (laughs) me of a Vonnegut book where you understand what's going on enough but it makes the whole experience so much better if you can discuss it where it's almost like the more fun part of the work isn't even the like enjoying digesting the work of art it's like getting to talk about it um so i would highly recommend watching it but also reading other people's commentary about it and then also suckering your friends into watching it with you and making them talk about it yeah the whole reason that this podcast exists for sure Okay, so I think that wraps it up for, <clears throat> drum roll please, Symbiopsychotaxiplasm, take one. <laughs> um, again, we cannot recommend this movie en- enough. Uh, the language is rough and it does touch on some tough stuff, so warning about that. Um, prob- probably not a family film. I mean, it would definitely be R-rated for language. But we would still definitely recommend watching it. Next time, we will be back onto regularly scheduled stuff. We will be doing French Connection since it did win Best Picture. But until then, you can find us on social media. We are at Best Pictures Pod on Instagram and Twitter. You can email us in at bestpicturespodcast at gmail.com. And um, if you do watch this movie, let us know what you think and what you think 
it's about and what you think the themes are and what your reality and experience with this one was. Because I could literally talk about this for hours. We already did talk about it for an hour. Yeah. About. And honestly, we could like go blow by blow. I'm glad we didn't. That would you don't want to hear us go blah blah blah. That'd be boring. No. <laughs> by the end of it, we'd both be insane because we wouldn't know what reality was anymore. <laughs> oh my. But yeah, thank you for listening. And as Maggie said, we're gonna return to our canon episodes next time with French Connection. <laughs>